Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 1. And we're going to begin our study of the five Old Testament sacrificial offerings. We're going to start today with the burnt offering. Let me pray one more time, and then we'll dive into Leviticus chapter 1. Father God, we do just thank you today for your word. And, and even this passage with, with a little literary nod in here reminds us that this is your word. This is what you have chosen to communicate to us about what you want us to know, what you want us to know about ourselves and the problems we face and what you want us to know about the solutions, the way forward, the way to heal, uh, the way to grow closer to you. All that redemption, all that good news is in here. And so Lord, we thank you for it. We, We thank you that you haven't left us in the dark. You haven't left us just kind of feeling our way, wondering what you want from us or wondering what we're supposed to do with our struggles. And further, we don't just have to look within, but we can look outside of us, something that gives us a grid to look through all of life. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would have great confidence in your word. Lord, to that end, I pray that you would send your spirit and that he would come in a way to where he would help us see the truth of the gospel here, that he would open our eyes, that he would give us faith, that he would shine the light of the gospel in all the dark areas of our minds or in our hearts that, that are just held in bondage to sin or, or just even things that we justify. Help us to see the truth of the gospel and just shine the light in it. Lord, I pray that we would walk away from this passage with a, a better sense of how we're to move forward with you to have that right relationship with you. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, oh fudge. Do you remember that scene from the Christmas story? That famous scene where that infamous slip of the tongue by Ralphie. If you remember, Ralphie had one job, right? He had one job. He's supposed to hold the lug nuts as his dad is changing the tire. And then what happens? Dad bumps it, Lug nuts go flying everywhere, and these lug nuts are flying into the dark. They're going to lose the lug nuts. And what is Ralphie's response? Oh, fudge. Now, of course, adult Ralphie's our narrator, and he tells us that oh, fudge is not actually what he said, but he said something worse. And in fact, that worst thing that he said, that becomes the real problem. The lug nuts weren't that bad, but oh, fudge is, is really what just becomes shocking to his father. His mother just flips out her sweet baby, just said this most awful of things, lost his innocence forever. Atonement had to be made. How was atonement made? Soap in the mouth, right? He had to pay. Something had to be paid for this great transgression. As I've thought about my most shameful moments, I tend to go to words, things that I've said that I could just give anything to take back. Do you have some of those? You have some of those oh fudge moments. I've, I've cursed and lost the respect of family and friends. I, I've said really embittered or mean words that have turned a conversation really uncomfortable. Do you have any of those oh fudge moments? Do you have, have any of those shameful moments that just continue to haunt us? Like that's how shame works. We've done something shameful in the past, and then either in our, in our own just flesh or through the devil himself brings those back up, right? And, and causes us to remember those. We, we replay on those quiet moments in our minds, and they 
They beat us down. They rob our joy. Those old, uh, those old fudge moments, they leave us feeling unacceptable and exposed and unclean and humiliated. Do you have past sins that still haunt you? Do you still have those moments where you feel ashamed? Has God ever called you to something, to, to really step out in some bold, faithful way, yet you don't because that bondage of shame kind of comes back up and just sinks its claws in you? Have you ever been paralyzed by shameful mistakes from the past? If that's you, you're a human, and that's why Leviticus was given to us by God. Leviticus is this uh, explanation of this religious system of offerings and sacrifices and festivals and days of atonement, all these different things that all deal with this problem of shame. It becomes this great solution to the problem of shame. Like we said, we're starting a new series where we're going to kind of look at the first five or so chapters of the book of Leviticus and look at these five offerings that he lays out. There's five different offerings, and they deal ultimately with this problem of shame. But before we get to Leviticus 1, let me maybe just set the context for the book of Leviticus. First off, the word Leviticus. That's a reference to the Levitical, the, the tribe of Levi, which is the tribe of priests, or the Levitical tribe of priests. So it's all about this, this priesthood ministry that was given to the people of God in the Old Testament. But second, uh, what they were doing and what the purpose of this book is all about is how does an unholy people have a relationship with a holy God? So how do those of us who are unholy How can we relate to or have this relationship with a holy God? He is holy. He's clean. We're sinful. We're unclean. And how do we address this problem of being unclean where where we're going to thus face his wrath, not be able to be in his presence? As a result of this, the Old Testament uh, people of God, they looked at the book of Leviticus and they didn't view it as a burden. They actually viewed it as a blessing. Everything in here is viewed as a blessing. Now, and in a very real way, like as we read Leviticus, there's a burden to it. Do this, don't do this. There's all these moral codes and sacrifices. And in a real way, there's a burden to this. However, originally the Old Testament people of God, they looked at this and they saw a blessing because it was the solution to the problem of shame. It was their pathway forward on how to be right with God, how to be holy when they were unholy. And that gets to the theme of the book of Leviticus. Over and over throughout Leviticus, we have this command to be holy as I am holy. So if you want to be in the presence of a holy God, we have a problem because we're not holy. And he calls us to be holy. And further, if you want a right relationship with God, you have to address these unholy, unclean issues in your life before you can be in his presence. So the great theme of the book of Leviticus is be holy for I am holy. Now, if you want to maybe a general outline of the book of Leviticus, the first five chapters are what we're dealing with in this series. And this is dealing with these five offerings that he lays out. Starting in chapter 6 to 10, it deals specifically with the priesthood. Then 11 to 15, there's all these cleanliness codes that he deals with. Starting in verse 16 to the end of the book, I I kind of view this as maybe an umbrella section of just holiness codes. So he deals with all sorts of things at the back half of the book. He he begins in in, uh, chapter 18, uh, I'm sorry, in chapter 16 with the Day of Atonement. 
Chapter 18 is this famous passage on unlawful sexual behaviors. Leviticus 23 talks about feasts and festivals. The next chapter talks about the tabernacle. Then he talks about this theology of obedience brings blessing. And then he closes with dealing with vows. That's kind of the general structure of the book. And we're just going to be looking at the first five chapters. However, fifth, the the focus of, of this series is on these five Levitical offerings, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and then the guilt offering. The first three are voluntary offerings. The second two, the final two are mandatory offerings. The burnt offering is all about acceptance through atonement. And we're going to unpack what all the other three are about in the coming weeks. Now, as we dive into these first couple of verses, the thing that I want you to see more than anything in these first two verses is that we are to confess our uncleanliness. We're to confess our uncleanliness. Look at verses one and two with me. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. This is an introduction to the burnt offering, okay? This is all just going to be an explanation of what the burnt offering is and how it's supposed to be carried out. But the first thing I want you to see here is this literary pattern starting in this first verse of the Lord called Moses and spoke to him. This is just this little nugget in this passage to affirm that this is the word of God, okay? This is God's uh, will for us. This is God's way for us. This is his idea. This passage is God's word. Next thing I want you to see is this is an offering of cattle from the herd or, or sheep and goats from the flock. Now, later on this final section, we're going to see that they could also make an offering of birds. But initially, it's cattle or sheep or goats. Now, the burnt offering, it's dealing with this issue of clean versus unclean. So, therefore, someone who was to make this offering, if you were someone in the Old Testament and you brought that, uh, that cow to be offered, What you're assuming there is your uncleanliness. You're saying, I'm unclean, I need to be clean. And so what you're doing there is a confession of sorts of your uncleanliness. And and that's where we need to start on this issue of shame. We need to start by confessing our uncleanliness. Now, modern people today, we really cringe at the idea of uncleanliness. However, much of, uh, even though we want to deny the fact that someone can be unclean or something can be unclean, even though we want to deny those things, we see the evidence of it everywhere. And we see the evidence primarily in the feelings of shame that we feel over unclean things. The best commentary on Leviticus is written by Gordon Wenham. And the way he describes cleanliness is this way. He says that, okay, what he's getting at in Leviticus is he's saying God is holy in humanity and all these created things, they're common. Now, the word common is not used in Leviticus, but it's kind of this umbrella term to include both cleanliness and uncleanliness, okay? So he's saying that humanity, but also some things, as as you see later on in Leviticus, they can either be clean or unclean. God's holy. He's not common. He's holy and set apart. But the way to relate to God is to be in this clean category, not the unclean category. Now, what he says is, is his assumption is, is that in Leviticus, that humanity is is typically kind of clean. However, we then get polluted by some sort of sin. Maybe it's a thought. Maybe it's something we do. We're, We're polluted in some way. And then we move to this category of unclean. 
Now think of it maybe as a spectrum here, that the way you get to holiness, the way you relate to the holy God, is you've got to move from unclean to clean in order to relate to him. So all of Leviticus is saying, okay, when you have moved from clean to unclean, how do we get back to clean so that we can relate to the holy, to the holy God? Are you with me? So all of this is about how do we become clean and relate to God, this holy God. So through Leviticus 1, he's calling us, maybe if you view it as steps, step one is to confess your uncleanliness. You've got to bring that animal. You've got to say, listen, I am unclean. That's kind of the, the step one. You, you can't relate to the holy God if you just totally disregard the categories of uncleanliness and cleanliness. If you say, listen, I'm fine, then you don't have any need of God. So it starts with confessing your uncleanliness. Now, again, our culture, and I think cringe is the right word, it really cringes at the idea of uncleanliness as if that's some sort of ancient, outdated idea. But I would argue that the vast majority of mental health issues really has at their root this issue of uncleanliness. Think of uncleanliness or cleanliness as reality. Some things are clean, some things are unclean. Now, the, the outgrowth of that is feelings of shame. So when people feel shame, it's a link to the fact that there's something unclean that's at the root of that. And again, I would argue that these, these problems of mental health issues, so much of that is connected to feelings of shame. So when people are anxious or when people are depressed, there's a root of shame at its core. And what I want us to see in Leviticus is this idea of uncleanliness is a direct connection to shame. Are you with me? Now, before we move on from this, modern psychologies you know, many times they just wholesale reject the idea of uncleanliness or shame or all these different things. I mean, no, they can't be true because we feel shame, you know, and, and the solution to that is say, oh, it's not that big a deal. Like it really wasn't that bad. Like that's not the solution. Okay. And, and that's what, you know, so much uh, advice and counsel uh, brings us to. But what the Christian understanding is, is to say, no, you need to confess that shame. You, you need to confess it in order to heal from it. You need to say, okay, if you're Ralphie and say Ralphie's haunted as an adult by saying, oh, fudge. And as he deals that, maybe his mom is just wearing him down every time she sees him. Well, I remember that time where you said this. And then he feels all this shame and is crushed by it. Listen, the way forward for Ralphie is not to say, you know, saying, oh, fudge, you know, it's not really a sin. It's not really a big deal. Really, the way forward for Ralphie is to confess, you know what? When I was seven or however old he was, I shouldn't have said that. Saying that, that, that was a sin. I shouldn't have said that. That's the way forward. That, that's, the, that's the start for it is to begin by confessing it. That's an offering to the Lord, if you will. If you begin with, you know what? Oh, fudge, that really is a sin. Okay, let's keep going. The second thing is we need to believe that God offers a solution. Start with recognizing sin is sin, but then move forward believing that God offers a solution. Look at three to nine. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his, head on a, uh, his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make an atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar, that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar 
and arrange the wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head, the fat, and, uh, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. Put its entrails and its legs. He shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering that is pleasing to the Lord. Again, this is just an explanation of the first part of this offering. And it's specifically the offering of, of a bull. And, and what he says here first is that this bull uh, is to be without blemish. Now, the key there for us here is that this is a, an animal of value, okay? This is supposed to be his, his best bull, okay? His, his very best one, he was to bring the one without blemish. The point is this was to cost him something, okay? The second thing I want you to see is that uh, the individual, not the priest, the individual was to lay his hands on the animal. Now, now what that is, is that's a, uh, that's a symbolic sign of what's happening spiritually there. What's happening there is the animal is the one without blemish, right? The, the individual is full of blemishes. But yet, when, when he lays his hand on it, it's as if he's transferring those blemishes onto the one without blemishes so that he can then be the atonement. So the unclean and the clean are united in that moment where the unclean transfers his sin upon the clean and the animal thus becomes a substitute. Now, Christians, you're, you're seeing all sorts of Jesus and gospel image there, right? But that's what's happening there. He's placing, he's, this animal is becoming this substitutionary atonement for his sins. And that's, a, that's the third point I want you to see. This is the purpose of this uh, of this sacrifice is atonement. The purpose of all this rigmarole and religious stuff is for that sin to be atoned for by this animal. The atonement is about reparation or payment for what's wrong. This unblemished animal then bears the weight of all this sin and becomes the atonement for the sinner. Next, notice how, how gruesome of a process this is. Okay, like we have you know, we have modernized with this, and I don't slaughter pigs or whatever, you know, and you probably don't either. But even in that day, this is, this is a gruesome, bloody mess, okay? What, what I want you to see from this is that, you know, uh, sin, to, to be made right with God and to be paid for, uh, forgiveness costs something, right? Now, certainly it costs his best bull, but there's also this this bloody, gruesome experience that he then has to go through in order to pay for his sin. That, that's the gravity of the way God views sin. The last thing I want you to see is there at the end in verse 9, the result of this bloody, messy sacrifice is he says that it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, what I don't think that that means is I don't think that this bloody, gruesome mess. I don't think it smelled good, okay? I don't think it put off a, you know, a good fragrance. What I think he's getting there is, is that this was pleasing to the Lord, meaning he accepted this gift. He accepted this sacrifice. Things were right now because of this. God was pleased. Therefore, the substitutionary atonement of the burnt offering, it made the unclean clean again. It was the solution to shame, it dealt with that problem and became the solution. The individual had done shameful things, making him unclean. And then he transferred all that onto this animal. And then thus God provided a solution to the shame. He made them clean again. Ed Welch is a Christian counselor. And he, he describes shame this way. He says that shame is the deep sense that you were unacceptable because of something you did 
or something done to you or something associated with you, you feel exposed and humiliated. Now, again, by comparison, our world, our world is in the business of saying that shameful things are actually not shameful things. They're the business of saying, okay, unvirtuous things are actually virtuous things. But, but we know those things can't, that, that that's not true. Because when we commit shameful acts, or shameful acts are committed against us, we deal with this problem of shame, don't we? That, like we remember those things that we said, or those horrible things done to us, and we struggle with shame. But, but also, uh, again, it's not just uh, uncleanliness. It isn't, it isn't just about the things that you do, but it's also about the things done to you. In fact, I think this is one of the most heartbreaking realities of when someone is abused. When someone is abused, they haven't done anything wrong. A wrong has been done against them. They experience shame. Now listen, when you have a friend that's there, or maybe you're there, hear me, it, it wasn't your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. And that's the right thing to say in that moment, okay? You didn't do anything wrong. However, you, you still struggle with shame, right? You, you still struggle with the, of, of feeling unacceptable and exposed and humiliated and unclean. You're probably like me where you've wept with friends or family who've been abused or mistreated. And, and even though they didn't do anything to deserve this, they, they didn't do the sin. They, they're, they're still left broken by this shame, right? And, and hear me, maybe that's you today. Maybe, you, uh, maybe something was done to you and you're left feeling unacceptable and humiliated and ashamed. But, well, friend, the, the hope of Leviticus 1 is that God offers a solution to that shame. If you did it or if it was done to you, he offers a solution to that shame. He can make you clean again. Let me say it this way. He wants to make you clean again. He's always offered a solution to shame. He still offers a solution to shame. You see, Ralphie doesn't have to be haunted by oh fudge for the rest of his life. I, I don't have to, you know, replay all these things that I've done in the past and, and then just being trapped in the bondage of shame for the rest of my life. When those thoughts are replayed in your mind and they sink their claws into you, you, you don't have to be in bondage for the rest of your life. God offers a solution to shame. We need to believe God offers a solution. But here's the solution, 10 to 13. And this is, I think, the key to the passage. We're to believe acceptance through atonement. The way forward, the way to healing is to believe acceptance through atonement. Look with me at verses 10 to 13. If his, if his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or the goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It's a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Again, this is just a, really a restatement of the sacrifice uh, with, uh, with, uh, with a bull. It's a different animal now, and he's talking about sheep and goat here, but he's trying to reiterate this main point of acceptance through atonement. Healing from shame comes through believing acceptance through atonement. This has always been the path for healing. This has always been the path for cleanliness and being holy with a, with a holy God. Think back to the garden. 
God, God offered a pathway in the garden forward, right? Think about it here in Leviticus. This is his pathway. This is his solution to the problem. He, he offers atonement here. Think about now. We're on this side of the cross. Christ offers us acceptance through atonement, doesn't he? Through a better sacrifice. Ephesians 5.2 says, God, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Don't you see all sorts of Levitical connections there in Ephesians 5? That he, he offers himself up for us. It's a fragrant offering, pleasing to God. That's what Jesus accomplishes for us. He's this loving sacrifice. This loving sacrifice results in this pleasing aroma that's acceptable to God. So his sacrifice is acceptable to God. So believing in Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross, that's how God accepts us. That's how we move from being unclean to clean. It's how we become free from the bondage of shame. So we have to believe Jesus over shame, right? But what does shame say? Shame says that you're unacceptable. But Jesus says, through my atonement, I accept you. Shame says your past words, they're going to leave you humiliated. But Jesus says, I forgive you, and I still love you, and I'm still with you, and I'm still sanctifying you. Shame says that you'll always be broken from what you did. But Jesus says, keep trusting me that I'll accept you and that you'll find freedom in my atonement. Believe acceptance through atonement. This last section, these, these, these final verses, I, I think makes this good news even better. It, it makes this good news great news. We're to believe that acceptance through atonement is for all. Look, look at the burnt offering for birds. 14 says, if his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop and its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place of the ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings and shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Again, these are just the basic instructions from the previous two sections. But the key here, the key difference is it's a bird. It's not sheep and goats. It's not a bull. It's, it's a bird. Why a bird? You see, the significance of this section is that even those who don't have enough money those who can't afford a cow or can't even afford a sheep or a goat, God provides a way even for them. Even if all they can afford is a turtle dove or a pigeon, God provides a way for all. He provides a way for all those, even those who are so impoverished that all they can afford is a turtle dove, they can still find acceptance through atonement. Acceptance through atonement is for all. He offers it to all. Mark, Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for who? For many. He didn't come. He, he came for many. This, this offer of acceptance through atonement, it's made to all. All can be made right with God. All uh, uh, can be saved. All uh, that he calls come to him. It's not just the few, it's the many. All of us can experience this atonement. All of us can experience this right relationship with God. All of us can experience this, this healing from uncleanliness and shame and move into this category of cleanliness and being right with God. 
He made a way for even those who could only afford a pigeon. He gave his life for the ransom for many. Believe that acceptance through atonement, but believe it for all. He can save all of us. Acceptance through atonement is needed because we all struggle with this problem of uncleanliness, don't we? You see, maybe it's your own, uh, maybe it's your own sin, the sin that you've done yourself, or, or maybe it's been sin that has been done against you. But either way, you're left with these feelings of being polluted, these feelings of being unclean or unworthy or unacceptable. Maybe you feel like a loser, or maybe you feel like you're unwanted. We can be haunted by sins of the past. We, we can become so paralyzed that we replay those mistakes in our minds over and over and over again. But the good news of Leviticus 1 is that God doesn't want to, want to leave us there. He's offering this solution for us. He, he doesn't want to leave us there. However, his solution, I think it's lasting and it's sturdy. It's sturdy and it's real because he doesn't wink at sin. We, we want to downplay sin and try to get to the solution. But God doesn't wink at the sin. He doesn't wink at your sin and he doesn't wink at the other person's sin. Now, we, we don't like it when he doesn't wink at our sin. We, we, we cry that he's being unfair. But then when someone sins against us, well, we get real Old Testament at that moment, right? Like God preserves that holy standard. And as a result of it, he provides this real solution to it. That means that this solution is sturdy. It's something we can build our lives upon. He maintains the holy standard, but he provides a solution. He makes the payment for you. The atonement, the payment, the sacrifice is to make you clean. The substitutionary atonement is how you can be right with a holy God. Listen, this is the way we function in our relationships. This is the way we function in our economics When something goes wrong, a payment has to be made before things can be made right. And this is how it works spiritually and religiously. We've sinned against God. A payment needs to be made, and he's made the payment. Romans 5, 8 says, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, what? Christ died for us. Even in our sin, not winking at our sin, not calling, oh, fudge, anything other than sin, He maintains that abuse done to you is sin. However, out of his great love for you, he becomes the substitutionary atone for you. Christ died for us. Isn't that good news? He died for us. The good news of Leviticus 1 is that God provides a solution for your shame. The solution for your shame is acceptance through atonement. He can make you clean through his loving sacrifice. And we have something better than bulls, and goats, and sheep, and turtle doves, and pigeons, don't we? We have Christ died for us. The takeaway, friends, is to turn from running from your shame. Turn from being in in bondage to your shame, from being held back by your shame or your past mistakes. Hear this point. Turn from believing what was done to you is deterministic for the rest of your life. Some of you need to hear that today. Turn from believing that thing that was done to you is now deterministic for the rest of your life. That you're just going to be broken or you're going to be filled with shame. You're going to be unworthy for the rest of your life because what was done for you. He's more powerful than that. Turn from believing that all you will ever be is unclean or unworthy or left out or unacceptable. Believe acceptance through atonement. Cleanse you from shame for all eternity. What I'm talking about here is being converted, being born again, being saved. That's how we're born again, is we believe that his sacrifice paid the debt. Christ died for us. Do you believe that? 
If you believe that, that's how you're born again. That's how you're saved. That's how his atonement then applies and affects uh, to your sin. Do you believe acceptance through atonement? Cleanse your shame for all eternity. But, but hear me also. Do you also believe that acceptance through atonement cleans your shame today? The gospel is not just an eternal reality. The gospel is a present right now, today reality. Acceptance through atonement has something today to, has, has something to say today for your shame. Your shame that you experience right now, acceptance through atonement ministers to you. You see, Christ died for us. It cleanses your shame. Friend, in what way do you feel unacceptable today? Think of it. In what way right now do you feel unacceptable or unworthy or foolish? Whatever that is, right there is where acceptance through atonement applies. Right there is where you need to hear that Christ accepts you. Right there, you need to believe his atoning sacrifice. Let me take it one step further. Some of us, I think, are thematically haunted by shameful things from our past. Friend, believe acceptance through atonement in order to heal from that haunting past. Some of you, this is the theme of your life. You're haunted by something done to you or something that you've done, and it comes up every day over and over and over. Friend, Christ doesn't want to leave you there. Now, now hear me. I'm, I'm not pretending that that hurt is going to disappear in an instant. However, if you believe that Jesus accepts you through his atonement, you can begin a healing process. You, you can be freed from that. You can claim that gospel truth every time those shameful memories come up. Every time those shameful memories come up and you're tempted to believe that you're unworthy, you're unacceptable, you're foolish, you can go back to these solid, gospel, sturdy truths of you've been atoned for out of love by Christ himself. He accepts you. Amen? That's the great hope of healing if you're haunted by shame. Have you ever said to yourself, I'm stupid, I'm wrong, I'm different, I'm too small, I'm too big, I'm worthless because she doesn't want me, I'm just an object to him, I'm a failure, I'm never going to be good enough, I'm a mistake. If you've been there, then you know what shame is, don't you? Ed Welch tells the story of a girl who kept uh, preaching a sermon to herself, which she kept believing, which she kept saying over and over to herself, and maybe this isn't a good church word, but over and over, she told herself, I suck. And that belief, that sermon that she would preach to herself in her mind, that just held her in bondage. And she would slip into these seasons of depression, just believing I, the I suck sermon. It would so fill her with shame that she wouldn't get out of bed. She wouldn't go to school. She believed anything bad that happened to her or anything bad that, that happened to someone that she loved. She believed that was her fault because I suck. She, she believed that uh, any disappointment, she got a bad grade on a report card, or she gained too much weight, or she lost too much weight, or, or she was left out of a group that she wanted to be part of. All of those things, if, if she liked someone, they didn't like her back, all that became this thing that she spiraled down into this I suck moment. I'm terrible. I'm unworthy. She believed the I suck sermon. However, a way out was believing a new sermon, believing that I'm accepted through his atonement. Now, I wish I could say her believing that wasn't a battle. She had to fight to believe that. She was like you and me. It wasn't 
like she prayed one prayer and then never struggled with shame again. It, it was a fight for her to believe that, to believe that new gospel. But through her counselor's help, the I suck belief was challenged with truth. Her counselor challenged her to capture her thoughts when she felt shame. The, the counselor uh, challenged her to believe the gospel when she felt shame. Her counselor challenged her to believe that she was accepted through atonement when she felt worthless, humiliated, and ashamed. She had to believe a new truth. She had to preach a new sermon to herself. It hasn't been an overnight change. She's had to fight hard. She's had to persevere. But Ed Welch says this about her. He says, quote, She can still find the old motto, the old motto, but it is no longer her very essence. I suck is now a scar that continues to heal. Isn't that beautiful? It's, it's a scar. It lingers, but it's beginning to heal. And this is how it heals. When shame returns, confess your uncleanliness. But, but believe that God offers a solution. Believe that acceptance through atonement is the solution. Like he says in Romans 5, 8 again, God shows his love for us. God shows his love for you. That while you are still a sinner, Christ died for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he loves you? In that dark fit of shame, in that moment when no one's around, you can think about anything, and those thoughts come back up, do you believe that he loves you there? Do you believe that he atones for, meaning already has paid for, that sin that still holds you in bondage? That's the way past it. That's the way to healing. That's the way to wholeness, is to believe that his atonement brings acceptance. Believe acceptance is through his atonement. Then believe it over and over and over and over again until you find freedom. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, what some might claim is a boring passage, we've just seen some glorious gospel truths. Lord, I pray that we would believe that we are accepted through your atonement. I pray that that truth would convert us and that it would continue to sanctify us, especially when all these lies of the flesh and lies of the devil keep coming back up. The lies being that those oh fudge moments, that that's who we are, that's all we're ever going to be. We're unacceptable, we're unworthy. We suck like that poor girl believed. Lord, I pray in those moments that we would believe these sturdy, deep, profound, beautiful gospel truths that were accepted through your atonement. May we find freedom through your acceptance. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.